I'm Nasal Wesmi, and welcome to a weekend special edition of Beyond the Headlines. Here, we're reposting a show from our friends at Emerge 85. On the 85%, Emerge 85's Joseph Dana and Mish'al Girgawi joined our editor-in-chief, Minal Uraibi, in the National Abu Dhabi's newsroom to take a look at the emerging markets of Saudi Arabia. We've touched on the country's future plans here on Beyond the Headlines, and this conversation takes a look at Saudi's global plans from a regional view. It's an interesting discussion that we hope you enjoy. Be sure to also check out our discussion on Iran from earlier this week, which looked at the country's modern history of protest in light of the civil unrest arising this week. And we'll be back next week with our usual coverage. But for now, here's the team at Emerge 85 discussing Saudi Arabia. Welcome to the 85%. I'm Joseph Dana, Emerge 85's editor-in-chief on this special edition of the podcast from Abu Dhabi. From political transformation to economic diversification, Saudi Arabia underwent profound changes in 2017, changes that will only gather momentum in 2018. A shock announcement from Saudi Arabia, it's going to allow women to drive, something that had previously been banned under the law. 11 princes and nearly 40 current or former officials detained, reportedly being held at the lavish Ritz Carlton in Saudi Arabia and Riyadh. All of it was driven by uh, Saudi Arabia's 32-year-old crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, popularly referred to as, by his initials MBS. This is the son of the king. He's framed the purge as a crackdown on corruption. Saudi Aramco, otherwise known as the National Oil Company of Saudi Arabia, says that it is is on track for an IPO in 2018, which could make it the world's most valuable company. And Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been revealed as the mystery buyer of a French stately home, thought to be the most expensive house in the world. The Chateau Louis XIV was sold for just over $300 million two years ago. The heir to the Saudi throne has also purchased a yacht and a da Vinci painting recently. From afar, the developments in Saudi Arabia are difficult to decipher. Will the country's young crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, be able to fulfill a radical economic transformation and manage regional conflicts from Yemen to Qatar? Will the Chinese disrupt the global trade of oil by purchasing a stake of the state oil company Saudi Aramco during its impending IPO? And how are Saudi citizens processing these changes? Today we bring you a special discussion about Saudi Arabia in transition from a regional perspective. In the Abu Dhabi studios of The National, the UAE's leading English-language newspaper, I'm joined by Michelle Al-Gargawi, co-director of Emerge 85, Amina Al-Arabi, editor-in-chief of The National newspaper. Welcome. It's exciting to be be doing this uh, podcast for the first time in Abu Dhabi. So I wanted to jump right in and talk about oil, the IPO of Saudi Aramco, and some of your thoughts about where you think the oil market's going and what the Saudis might be up to. So we know that MBS, the crown prince, wants a $2 trillion valuation. And we know that quite a few major institutional investors that are situated in the West find that valuation a little too high. At the same time, we also know that Aramco specifically, but also most of the national oil companies in the Gulf and in the region, have almost swapped their historical Western importers to uh, Eastern ones. So instead of uh, France or Germany or the U.S. or Italy today, you have Korea, Japan, China, and Vietnam as your major importers of energy. And we know that China, as well, 
is interested in exiting the dollar-denominated oil trading system. It's succeeded in doing that with Russia and with Venezuela. But fundamentally, the dollar system that was instituted between Nixon and King Faisal is really something that is fundamentally based on Saudi Arabia's adherence to it since 1973. We have also heard from Chinese companies, national oil companies of China, that they may be interested in a private placement, so a direct investment, not an IPO. So what I think might happen in 2018 is that you might get an, a strategic investment from China into Aramco, which would in turn increase the quota of Saudi exports to China, which would in turn increase the revenue numbers of Saudi Arabia, which would also lead to a stronger IPO eventually. But at the same time, I wonder if China wouldn't uh, ask Saudi Arabia, since I'm doing you a solid on the valuation front, that perhaps you can sell me some of the oil in my currency as opposed to the dollar, the yuan. So I see that as a really, really interesting kind of big, big story that is developing very, very slowly. And at some point, it's going to be very difficult for Saudi Arabia to say, no, I'm going to keep selling you oil in dollars. And in return, I think Saudi Arabia will get a very strategic investment from, from China and its quota of exports to the largest, one of the largest importers of energy in the world can really significantly increase. So that's like a huge, very slow play that's happening, I think. But I think the U.S. is aware of that play. And so there has been a push from Americans to say to the Saudis, we are your strategic partners. Aramco, at its heart, is about that relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States. And so they see the Chinese are interested and want to play their cards. And on the other hand, you know, everybody jokes about Trump tweeting out to the Saudis and saying, hey, you know, come to New York Stock Exchange. But it's bigger than that. It's their way of saying, you need us to maintain your edge. And whether that strategic relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia is solidified in 2018, as we're seeing politically, um, it is, then they try to sway what happens with Aramco. And I think an, an interesting part of what the Saudis are doing with this IPO is also talking about how they're opening up parts of their books to the world, talking about their budget in detail, talking about how they're diversifying the economy. That opening up of Saudi Arabia's books and how they're actually planning their um, economic diversification, but also how they're planning the next step of the oil industry, um, I think is going to affect the, the region and also the world. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that kind of segues into another uh, major plot line in the Saudi story this, this year, which is Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and his um, pushes to kind of open up Saudi Arabia. And I think one of the interesting um, points to kind of touch on is the events that happen around the anti-corruption kind of crackdown and the conferences signaling to the world that uh, Saudi is open for um, investment. And so the question I have is, do the Saudis under MBS fundamentally understand what Western investors want? Are they getting it right? So the Saudis understand what Western investors want to a large extent. However, whether they're willing to go all the way to meet those demands is still unclear. 
before the small anti-corruption drive, by only a couple of weeks, was that major public investment fund conference, the Future Investment Initiative, I think is what they called it. It was everybody that counted from any major organization, multinational organization, international financial institution, was there. And numerous people I spoke to came away impressed and, and thinking, hang on, they actually understand what's required, and they're willing to take those tough decisions. And that was an important moment, and I think it was strategically played out of, of saying, we're going to get all this buy-in before we na- make the next move, which was the internal drive and, and you know, um, some of the most famous Saudi names suddenly being under arrest and nobody really understanding what happens next. However, there was all this buy-in in advance of saying, okay, they actually understand what it takes. I want to make a counterintuitive point, which is I don't think we're in the economic phase of MBS's plan yet. So I think if you think about everything that he's done, restraining the religious police, liberalizing society a little bit, women driving, cinemas, arresting a significant number of senior princes and holding them accountable to some corruption charges. I think MBS believes that if you're going to do change, you cannot wait for consensus. So Frederick the Great did this, Deng Xiaoping did this, Lee Kuan Yew did this, Churchill. There's a lot of people who wanted to execute specific things. You may or may not think that they are executing the right things, but to execute them well, they cannot depend on a 60- or 70-year-old consensus system. And so I think everything that's happening right now is fundamentally we're still in the political reform phase. And what I mean by political reform, in a way that's different from probably how you think about it in a Western context, we have to reform the decision-making process in Saudi Arabia. Now, some people have said that we've gone from very slow Saudi Arabia to a bit too fast. <laughs> we can't keep up with all the decisions. Um, and I think that's gonna, that, that has to normalize at some point. Like it, We're not going to be this fast you know, continuously. But I think that everything has been announced, Neom, Red Sea, all of this stuff, I think that is still vision-making. We certainly know from the UAE and in Dubai, there was a lot of projects that were announced that were never realized, but their utility was not necessarily to be realized. Their utility was to comprehensively give substance to the vision. When you want to go fast, and when everybody around you is going really fast, you cannot have the consensus system that we did. And I think that's fundamentally the first issue that MBS is solving for. That's the X. He's solving for that X which is a more efficient decision-making process. We've seen that in Dubai. We've definitely seen that in Abu Dhabi at multiple points. And we've seen that when it's absent, you end up with decays and you see fiefdoms and subgroups and people working against each other. And I think fundamentally that's the most important measure for me. Investors are waiting for that. They're waiting to see, does after the dust settle, does MBS completely run the show And once that's done, then they can sit down with him and be like, so what can we do? Petrochemicals, real estate, infrastructure, telecom, what do you want to privatize? What can we go do it together, et cetera? Because historically, the Gulf hasn't had a great reputation about being a a attractor of FDI, with the exception of the UAE. And even there, it's primarily been a Dubai story of people buying real estate. So it's really hard. The world looks at us in the Gulf as a place that has excess capital that can be deployed to go buy assets in the West. 
or do some infrastructure stuff or agriculture stuff in Africa and Asia. So changing that mindset and introducing Saudi Arabia as a place. And it's not a UAE. Saudi Arabia is a large country. It's 30 million people, et cetera. It's a very different play than the UAE. So I think watching that is going to be very interesting. But I fundamentally believe that the, the species homo investorus, if you may, <laughs> is the most cowardly of all uh, uh, homo sapien species. And they really want to understand. And when they're confused or when there is like vagueness, uh, they are not going to come. And I think MBS understands that. Yeah, I think this is what makes this story so profound is that you, you are describing a complete upheaval in terms of the structure of society, both economically and culturally, that seemingly came out of nowhere. Although if you're watching Saudi, you could see these trends kind of bubbling up on the ground. Um, and then on top of that, and this is where I want to steer the conversation, you have Saudi Arabia's very difficult foreign policy situation in which it is embroiled in this conflict in Yemen. It's got some issues that it has to work out in Lebanon. It's got its uh, regional adversary in Iran. And so I wanted to ask you, Mina, where do you see these challenges in 2018? Is this going to impede uh, MBS's ability to conduct this revolutionary change in Saudi? Uh, Is it going to help it, maybe? So you're right in pointing out the regional dynamics as being a serious challenge for Saudi Arabia. But I think it's part of the mantra of change um, that we've been discussing here has been Mohammed bin Salman's approach of saying, we need to actually change how we do things. And Saudi Arabia for decades has been known as being cautious behind the scenes, behind closed doors, things are discussed, no major change, no abrupt decision-making. And he's trying to change that and saying, we need to be masters of our own destiny, even if that means that we make mistakes along the way. I think he believes in the long term, they're setting Saudi Arabia as being proactive, not always reactive, and also able to hurt those that will threaten Saudi Arabia. And I think genuinely there is a sense in Riyadh that these are threats, whether it's Iran's efforts to influence what's happening in Yemen, and even more so, I mean, with the ballistic missiles being targeted at Saudi Arabia, there is a real sense of, okay, the threat's real and it's here. What's been really interesting in 2017 is the opening up between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. This has been something that, and I'm Iraqi, I'm biased, Mm -hmm. um, that hasn't gotten enough play of how significant it really is. I mean, first of all, you've had the Saudis for the first time since 1990 open the land border with Iraq. You've got direct flights, which never had. And the conversations that Saudi officials are having with Iraqi officials are, we're going to come to either have joint ventures together, so business interests, or decisions that are made on economics or security information sharing that's never happened in a quarter of a century is now happening. Um, And that's part of their way of saying, okay, this isn't being driven by the Americans. I mean, the Americans have been trying from 2003 till 2017 to convince the Saudis to really get involved in Iraq, and they've, they've shied away. Now it's being driven, actually, by the Saudis, and the Saudis are informing the Americans, this is what we're doing with the Iraqis, and this is what we think we can do. And so if they can find those tactical moves that can help a wider strategy of Saudi Arabia being a key player 
in the region beyond just its size and the fact that it has the two holy sites. And it's bigger than that, saying that we actually have cards that we can play and we're going to play them. And sometimes to the outside world, it will seem like what is going on is complete madness. In their mind, it's our way of showing where we can put pressure and where we can leverage our strengths. The Yemen war is undoubtedly the biggest challenge. It is Saudi Arabia's backyard. It's also the ties between Yemen and Saudi Arabia, between the people of Yemen and Saudi Arabia. And you have people say between 600,000 to 800,000 Yemenis in Saudi Arabia. Um, and this is a war that I do believe that Saudi Arabia wants to wrap up and wants to see a conclusion to. It has a very difficult political dynamic inside of Yemen. And so 2018, that will remain probably its most important challenge. And Misha, I wanted to refocus the question for you um, because of our conversations in the past in terms of tying the foreign policy situation back to the so-called Arab Spring and, mm. so, and the regional order. And mm. do you see value in, in understanding a greater trend or kind of thread uh, connecting Saudi's foreign policy uh, initiatives with a certain desire to reprogram the region? So I think if you kind of wanted to, like, divide the region into camps, you sort of have the MB and Friends group. Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood right. and co. And there you have Qatar, Turkey, and other Muslim Brotherhood branches, and obviously the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. And there's a view there. There's another view, which is Iran and friends. So Iran, Hezbollah, plus plus. Then there are people who are completely removed, like Algeria, like Oman, who are really spectators, and they would very much um, like not to participate in any specific camp. And then you have UAE slash Saudi and friends. That includes Egypt. It includes largely Jordan. It also includes Morocco, but Morocco is a little bit further. So the way I see it is that these sort of let's call them the traditional politically conservative states, right? And I think it's very important to kind of own that. These are countries, and, you know, we've had the UAE, foreign, UAE Minister of Foreign Affairs, Anwar Gurgash, said there's a difference between uh, wanting the status quo or prioritizing stability. These are two different things. And the UAE fundamentally has said that we are pro-stability. And I think Qatar has said we are pro-change at any cost. And there's just a clash in cost-benefit analysis. So fundamentally, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, represented by MBZ and MBS, Mohammed um, bin Zayed, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, and MBS, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, believe that that stability is very valuable and it's very, very hard to replace. And I think we have a lot of field research that is sympathetic to their view. The Qataris believe that whatever the, 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 the issues are, whatever the change is, you know, eventually we're going to get to a greener pasture. I don't see a lot of evidence that it looks like it. I don't see a lot of evidence that we are really prepared uh, for that kind of transition. So I think Saudi Arabia today, the reason why it looks like Saudi Arabia is like upsetting the peace and kind of like pushing in different places is fundamentally because everybody else kind of moved in, right? So you have the Turks, you have the Iranians, you have others who really have kind of like taken on a much, much larger role than they did maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I think fundamentally the question is, what are the rules for running this region? And we know, for example, that however one can find that the MB or the Iranians effective, 
it's unclear what happens day two. Right? So, like, when they win, right? And this has always been my question to people who are sympathetic with it. I'm like, when they win, what happens? Look at Lebanon. For a while, it was controlled by Hezbollah. Now you have kind of a government, and Hezbollah is part of it. But look at Lebanon today versus pre-Rafiq Hariri Lebanon. As an economy, as a society, there were Lebanese people starting business in Lebanon back then. No one's starting a business in Lebanon now. I'm sure there's, like, people doing that. But, like, no one thinks that's a good move, right? If you think about what was happening to Egypt and the calls for jihad, the calls for this. It's unclear to me that these groups understand how to win. So I think they have a problem. So I think the Iranians, uh, the MB, uh, fundamentally have this revenge opposition perspective versus one about victory. They want revenge. I'm not sure they want victory. Well, if you look at Saudi Arabia and the UAE and whatever you think of their program for the region, when they win, theoretically... I think it's very clear to imagine what they're going to do. They want more growth. They want more consumerism. So if you really hate capitalism, you might not like it. But by and large, what they want is basically growth, opportunity, more rights for minorities and things like that. Yes, they want to be freedom of speech uh, that ACLU would approve of. But fundamentally, it is growth and prosperity within the sphere of stability. That is the project. I don't know how to describe the equivalent of that for the Iranians, or for the Muslim Brotherhood. And I, so far, haven't found a compelling argument that like whatever that's coming for the average person is, is, is of equal clarity. I haven't seen that. I don't understand that. I just want to jump in here because I think actually for at least the Iranians, we've seen what it looks like if the Iranians win, if, if we call it winning, so to speak, in parts of Iraq and parts of Syria. And it really is about having a theocracy that's very strong, and that dictates people's lives. Um, and that will really go into the most basic elements of your day-to-day life, and that will also go into the bigger picture of everything from economics and so forth. And there's also the military angle. And I think militarization of societies is something that we're seeing actually in the region. So not just from one side or the other, but there is this idea of militarization. And I think it comes back to also, you know, we're in this interesting period where... The United States under Barack Obama made it clear that they're disengaging from the region. And there was a sense, very much so felt in Saudi Arabia, that you really can't trust anyone um, except your most closest neighbor and the one that's closest to you, which is the United Arab Emirates. And so, one, we have to take care of our own security, came into thinking. Two, the guarantors of security previously, the United States, cannot be trusted. And it, by the way, I don't think that's changed much with the current administration. I think there are short-term uh, alliances that are being built, but no one is there is, a, enough. There, there is an Obama-Trump continuum yeah. on, on a, quite, quite a few fronts. And I don't think anyone is gullible enough in Saudi Arabia to think that you know one president comes and it completely changes. There was a shift. There was a real shift in the United States. And no one is expecting that Russia or China will fill that void. So it's really, it is about what is the regional order that's going to be set by whoever is strongest in the region. And with the situation that Syria finds itself in, that Iraq finds itself in, that Egypt finds itself in, different, but similar in the sense that they can no longer be leaders as such of the Arab world. You've got Saudi Arabia feeling, well, if we don't fill the vacuum, you've got the Iranians or the Turks who are going to fill the vacuum. I don't think the end goal is or should be a full-on confrontation where only one comes out. I don't think that 
is realistic strategically, nor is it like something that we should be entertaining. I think fundamentally, if you think about the Iranians, they've had this revolution, and then they had this war with Saddam, and everybody was supporting Saddam. And if you know anything about Shia history and their experience and, and their culture, there is this kind of minority perspective. And so it was a very David versus Goliath moment for them. They won. Whatever the outcome of the war, it was a miracle from the Iranian perspective. And I think they never forgave the Gulf for supporting Saddam. I think today, the, this side of the Gulf, so the Arab side of this Gulf, needs to basically continuously demonstrate that it's, it's not made up of cities of salt, right? And so that these are not places that were not relevant before oil and will not be relevant after oil, but they actually have something going on. They can build strong societies, uh, sustainable economies, strong militaries, etc., uh, uh, viable political systems. And on the other side, there has to be a new generation. Every time you talk to an Iranian that is remotely a baby boomer, he tells you that my brother died in the war, my cousin died in the war. So there's too much memory, right? So I think if we continuously are able to demonstrate that we are strong and reliable actors in the region, and the Iranians will recognize that eventually, if we do deliver on that, if a new generation comes, then at that point we can sit down and have what they call the final discussion, right? The final negotiation, and really figure out how to coexist with these people. But you cannot do it from a position of weakness. And today, the Iranians look at the Gulf and they think that it is not a strong and worthy adversary. This is my hope that everything that's happening on this side of the Gulf eventually gets to a point where we qualitatively and quantitatively become stronger and we can have a post-Arab Spring order on this side. That side, in front of the Iranians, can eventually get to peace. There can be a grand understanding. I disagree. In well, the there has to be. That, there this, has to no, be. I disagree with your point about, you know, I wasn't making the point that there has to be a war, all-out war. But I don't think that it's actually you've got the Gulf on one side, you've got the Iranians on the other side. I think there's a lot that's mixed up, and it's the countries that aren't in the Gulf that are being mixed up in the mix. So I think so those crises become sides. easier to solve once you have that grand understanding. There is no moment where you say it's the end of history and this is going to be a grand understanding and we're all on opposite sides because there are, there are mixed interests. So I don't think it's about having a confrontation, but I do believe that there is a moment now in the region where there is a seriousness of looking at this as countries' interests rather than Shia versus Sunni. And that's been the biggest mess of the last couple of decades of trying to understand what's happening in the region purely through Yeah, it's a strategic a conflict. Sectarian, it's not a sectarian yeah, conflict. It's not a sectarian conflict. And I think all too often in the region yeah. and in the Arab world, it's been accepted as or promoted as a sectarian conflict, which the Iranians have loved because, again, it's a theocracy, and for them to be able to use the religion card has made life much easier than I think the Iranians could have ever imagined. I just think it's very difficult for me to imagine Iraq or Lebanon, for example, uh, sorting its internal dynamics with Saudi Arabia and Iran still at odds. I find it really, really difficult. And I think these countries deserve to have their own uh, autonomy, they deserve to have their own political reconciliation, but that's only possible if those two very large actors in this region come to a grand understanding. It's a very stimulating conversation that we um, are not going to solve right now. And we disagree, but, uh, <laughs> which is so <laughs> much more fun. Interesting, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, 
we've had these stories about $300 million French chateaus that are being bought by the Saudi crown prince, the paintings that are coming to Abu Dhabi. Are these just distractions, these other stories that we see coming out? Is this, is this the media just looking for another narrative because the, the gravity of the story is just so heavy? We know that the Da Vinci story is related to a personal interest by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia to contribute a piece to the Louvre, this museum that was opened in Abu Dhabi in the UAE, an allied state. So it was a diplomatic gesture. I think the mechanics of it is something that we in the Gulf continuously like. just need to get better at it. We're not very good at communication. And so the mechanics of how it was, a cadet prince bought it, then it was actually MBS, then it was given to the culture and art authority, and then a statement came out. And I think in that vacuum, it's open for interpretation, uh, and some might not be very kind. And also, it was very easy to contrast that with like the Ritz. So I think what fundamentally was something that could have happened in a very, very different way got turned into this issue. And so I think part of it is also understanding communications and signaling and things like that. Everybody's interested in Saudi Arabia at the moment. So suddenly it's the biggest story and everybody has to have something to say on it. This year, journalists from abroad were getting five-year multiple entry visas, which was unheard of before. But still, you know, they get there and they don't exactly have the right connections or know on whose doors to knock. I think there is also a sense of, among some journalists, a real arrogance or a resentment of seeing, oh, things are actually changing. Saudi Arabia, there's much more cynicism, I think, in tackling the Saudi story than I see with other stories. And so as somebody who's been going to Saudi Arabia since the 1990s and sees how tangible the changes are since June, people don't necessarily want to hear that. You know, every decade we sort of have the new people who are making noise. So in the 70s, it was the Kuwaitis. In the 80s, it was the Japanese. In the 90s, towards the 2000s, it was the new the Russians, sort of post-communism. And then we have the Chinese. And maybe, you know, for the next 10 years, we're going to have the Saudis. There's always a fascination with the new people from the East, as it were, with money, who are actively, dynamically doing stuff. And I think a big part of that is cultural diplomacy. So I think the Japanese, for example, have historically benefited a lot from having a lot of things that we like, like sushi, like samurai, like Toyota, like Sony, like anime. And these are all things that make us understand, although we continue to exoticize sort of the Japanese, but we still feel like that is a cool, different thing. While maybe Russia hasn't done that very well. China is sort of mid-space, mid right? So what will the Saudis do? And I think one of their greatest um, strengths is that they have a really vibrant cultural scene. They have some amazing people, probably the best people today, in my opinion, in the Gulf and perhaps the Arab world on YouTube, making really amazing shows, making really amazing content, music, arts, design, etc. And I think if the world saw more of that, maybe they can see beyond a rich 32-year-old prince trying to remodel the country and actually see a society that wants to do more than that. I think Saudi is more than just the story of, of, of the crown prince. And I think it's unfair to the rest of Saudi Arabia to reduce that story to that one person. That's it for this episode. The 85% is a production of Emerge 85 Lab, co-located in Washington, D.C. and Abu Dhabi. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at E85Lab and sign up for our newsletter at Emerge85.io. And listeners, a reminder that we want to hear about a recent film you saw from the 85 world. That's Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. 
record a voice memo, and in it, tell us about the film and where you saw it, whether it was a crowded theater in Delhi or film festival in Cape Town. Email the voice memo to media at emerge85.io. I'm Joseph Dana. Happy New Year, and until next time.